Hey guys, so I uh, found a pretty similar background, but there's no dumpster behind me. I think it's because this is the back of a subway. So anyway, I really did try to go with an indoor location, but with the surge in COVID cases, they no longer have seating. So I'm out here in another parking lot. You are welcome. Ryan told me that the sermon from last week looked like I had recorded it in the middle of the night, like at 3 a.m. I couldn't sleep. So I was like, okay, I'll just talk on a computer. Maybe that's what happened. You'll never know. So we are continuing our journey in Exodus. This week, looking more at Moses in his life and development and encounter with God. So where we left off was that God had heard Israel's cries as they were tormented in slavery and enacted this miraculous deliverance of a baby boy who was supposed to be killed according to Pharaoh's decree. So little baby Moses evaded death somehow when he was rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh when he was in his makeshift crib, mad props to his mom for figuring out a way to save him. Anyway, so Pharaoh's daughter ended up adopting him and he grew up in the palace. And as Acts 7 tells us, he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in strength in his actions. So here's the Hebrew kid who was raised in the wealth and privilege of Pharaoh's palace. I can only imagine the internal conflicts and need for counseling that he experienced. Um, one of those things where I cannot imagine anyone having to navigate an experience where they are the baby that survived when all these other moms had to bury their Hebrew sons. And he's walking around in a palace where he can probably see out of his window his actual brothers and sisters who are suffering under enslavement that his adoptive family has decreed. So that right there just sets up a whole lot of issues for Moses. Lots of things that he had to navigate. So while God has begun the deliverance of his people Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, Moses also has some things he's going to have to work out himself. So here's what we know. Uh, Exodus 2 says, Now when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brothers, so the Hebrews, and he looked on their harsh slavery and mistreatment. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. So he looked around and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and then buried him in the sand. So back to the whole working out the internal conflict thing, killing is not our best option. But I, I think about what he was experiencing and uh, the text even highlights the fact that these were his brothers by mentioning it twice. He was looking at his brothers, the Hebrews, who were being debilitated by harsh slavery. And then he saw an Egyptian beating one of his brothers, the Hebrews. And so there we know that he has a connection to the people of Egypt in that that's where he lives. However, his heart who he is and who he's made to be is still connected to the people who are experiencing slavery. So I can only imagine all the things that he had to work through and experience uh, to grow up in wealth while being able to see people who are mistreated. If you have any kind of a soul, then you would have battled internal conflict at that point. Uh, once Moses finds out that Pharaoh is aware of the murder, then he has to run away. He was really hoping that if nobody saw and he could bury this Egyptian that he killed in the sand, then he would be scot-free. However, he ends up having to escape Egypt and becomes a fugitive 
running away and then coming to Midian uh, is in that process of being in Midian that he rescues the seven daughters of Jethro from some really rude shepherds and is rewarded with Zipporah as his wife. So when we catch up with Moses, he kind of skips from this murdered an Egyptian to now has a family and is shepherding in Midian. I'm sure there's a lot that happened in that time, but when we are brought into the story is when he is, uh, when Moses is shepherding some of Jethro, his father-in-law's flocks, and Jethro was the priest of Midian, just so you know. And so as he is shepherding these flocks, the text says that he took them to the edge of the desert and he was nearing Horeb, the Mount of God. It was when he was getting close to the mountain of God that all of a sudden he saw a bush that was burning. And burning bushes were not so rare, and they're in the desert, and so there's a lot of heat. But it was burning and ablaze and yet not burning up. So even though it was on fire, it was not being consumed by the fire. So Moses, looking and seeing that the fire was not consuming the bush, said, I should turn aside and see this. And when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the burning bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. You're standing in a place that is sacred, not because of location, but because of who it is that has shown up and is wanting to meet with you in that space. So I get that this space is holy. I get that it's a consecrated place. And I think about that idea of Moses being asked to take his shoes off because it's holy ground. There are an amazing number of references to shoes and taking off shoes in the Bible. And I wish we had time to explore them all. But sometimes it's a sign of respect, you know, and it's kind of a way of recognizing the dirt that I have carried in this common way and not bringing it into a home why we leave our shoes off before we enter a house. Also, for ancient Israels, this was um, Israelites, it was also a way of legalizing a business transaction. If I took off my shoe, it was a way of saying that this possession or um, territory that I have, I am giving up my rights to it. But I just kept thinking about this whole shoe thing. I mean, were they just super dirty or was it a symbol of vulnerability and surrender? I don't know if any of you are shoe people, but I'm really not. Um, I think they're great. I just tend to, if I do get a pair that's a little fancier, I'm not gonna wear them. And I know there are some people who will buy a pair of shoes just to wear to one event. But the way I do the whole shoe thing is I buy a pair of shoes and I'm gonna wear them until they fall apart. Like until the soles, the bottom of the shoes are begging me to just put them out of their misery. Like true story, I have stapled, duct tape, hot glue and super glued shoes before they finally make their way into the trash can. I probably even still didn't give them away, right? But I tell you what, I love shoes because I feel like they tell a story. So I got my first pair of Chuck Taylors of Converse when I was in seventh grade. And ever since then, I wear a pair of Converse until they completely break out and then I get a new pair. 
So these particular shoes, these are my first high tops that I've gotten, but these particular shoes have gone with me to China, to Turkey, Mexico, Japan, Europe. I've worn these shoes at weddings and funerals and hospitals and graduations and treatment centers. They hold memories of my highs and lows and the completely unpredictable journey that I've been on. Because there's something about a shoe that is able to travel places and hold memories of that. And if you think I'm crazy, I'm not alone in this. Anybody a BBC's Sherlock fan? I like how I pause waiting for you to answer as if I'm going to be able to hear that. Well, um, I really am, like kind of obsessively. And I love that Sherlock, this brilliant detective, is able to come up with the most obscure leads and solutions and evidence to a situation in which there seems to be no leads or evidence. And so he has this ridiculous precision in which he can crack open a case that has minimal possibilities as far as the eye can see. And yet his ability to observe and his ability to deduce to solve crimes that other people can't is what makes him such a success. Okay, yes, I know it's not real, but hold with me on this. So there is a story in which Sherlock is trying to find out who kidnapped these two kids, and it's in season two in the last episode. And in this, all he has is a shoe print of the person who kidnapped these children. That's it. So Anderson, who's this guy who's a member of the forensics team, tells Sherlock that a shoe print cannot tell them anything about the kidnapper. There's no way they can solve this mystery and rescue these kids with just a shoe print. But Sherlock replies back that the shoe print tells him everything from height and stature and gait and walking pace. And so he manages to take a sample of the floor where the shoe print is and runs analysis on it in the lab. And so Sherlock says that the oil in the kidnapper's footprint will lead them to the answer. He explained to Watson that all the chemical traces have, should I do it in like a British? All the chemical traces have been preserved. I'm so embarrassed I did that. I'm not taking it out. He explained to Watson, now listen, it's serious. All the chemical traces have been preserved. The sole of the shoe is like a passport. If we're lucky, we can see everything he's been up to to this point. So through the shoe print, Sherlock was able to identify chalk and where it was from brick dust, glycerin, and asphalt, which lets him know where the kidnapper has been and helps him to rescue those kids. So just like my shoes here, and Sherlock agrees with me, Moses' shoes told a story as well. When he gets to the burning bush, when he gets to this place that is holy ground, his shoes have been through stories that I can relate to as someone who has walked through a lot of paths, a lot of up and downs, a lot of mistakes and failures and some successes in the midst of that. So I'm fairly certain that Moses only had one pair of shoes. Maybe he had a shoe closet back at Pharaoh's place, but since we know that he's a fugitive and on the run at this point, then we, only, we know he only had that one pair. So his sandals, his shoes were with him when he was at Pharaoh's palace being trained in the wisdom of the Egyptian. 
that he was wearing these shoes when he's living a life of wealth and privilege and also being in a family responsible for the oppression of his birth family. I can imagine that he's wearing these shoes as he's pacing back and forth wondering if his birth mother's okay or wondering what he can do about his brothers and sisters suffering. I know that he was wearing these shoes or I'm assuming as he's among the Hebrews talking with them on his sandals were the dust from the bricks that they were making and the sweat of these people who were enslaved and the Hebrew tears of desperation. His sandals had encountered the anger of injustice and even the blood of the Egyptian guy that he murdered. Think about the sand then that he tried to cover up this murder, burying this guy in sand, realizing that his shoes are also covered in that sand as much as they were covered in that Egyptian's blood. And his sandals were covered in the dirt as he ran away from Pharaoh, as he was a fugitive running out of Egypt and the dirt of Midian, where he rescued the seven daughters of Jethro. And these were probably the sandals he wore when he married Zipporah and when he held their baby boy for the first time. Shoes tell a story, guys. They bore witness to it all, everything he'd been through. And the places he'd walked up to this encounter with God had shaped who he was, right? But now he's being asked to take those off. Take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Now we might not think that that would be a big deal, but it's more, of course, the symbolism of all of this, that he was told to approach God without holding on to all this extra stuff, which also meant not having a tight grip on the past. He was being called to something different. He was being called into something new. God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when he said this, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Exodus 3 continues, And the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have paid attention to their cries for help, and I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. And now look, the cries of the sons of Israel have come to me and I see the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing the sons and the daughters. So let's go, he says to Moses. I'll send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my sons and daughters of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons and daughters out of Egypt? And he said, I promise that I will be with you. I love that God appears in the burning bush and says, this is the plan. This is what's going to happen. And Moses is like, hold the phone. I don't think this is your best plan. So he has this kind of questioning, you know, this dialogue with God in which he's saying, okay, so who am I? And God's like, well, it's not really about who you are. It's about who I am and I'm going to be with you. And Moses says, so I go tell Israel and tell them the God of your fathers has sent me to you. What do I tell them your name is? So even in the midst of this conversation, um, I love that doubt and questions can always be a part of our connection with God. That is not at all a negative part of this. 
What we do see, though, is Moses is holding on to some of his past expectations. It almost is if, in the same way the shoes tell the story, he has allowed all of these experiences that have shaped him and led him to this point, instead of those just describing who he is, he's allowed those to define who he is. I mean, he sees himself as someone who is on the run, who doesn't fit into either culture, someone who has to be in hiding because of his past, um, someone who's just going to have to stay in Midian until every Pharaoh dies, until who knows how long. So it's nothing about the shoes and the stories being the problem. Those are what describe our story. It's an issue when it defines our story. And it seems to be that Moses is having a hard time taking that off in this space of holiness and being with God. So why do we take off our shoes? What does that mean? I think it has more to do with the holy ground than the act of taking off the shoes. Because holy ground is the place where there's no limits, where there's no expectations, where even if you've encountered God at a different time, even if it's the same God, it's a completely new and like ceilingless, floorless situation. I mean, who knows? Like there are absolutely infinite possibilities that come with meeting with God. Take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground is recognize that all the things that have brought you to this point, those things are not going to define what happens from here on out. Do I have a tight grip on what it is that I've experienced? Am I almost holding God to have to match that or use that or go along with whatever narrative I have? Those shoes were responsible for bringing Moses to the point where he saw the burning bush. In the same way, my shoes have been an incredible part of my journey and so many shaping experiences. But the incredible thing about an encounter with God is that I don't need whatever happened in the past in order to go wherever I'm going with God now. God speaks this word to Moses and says, it is happening and I'm going to use you to bring the freedom that I have promised to these people that I love. The words, who am I, Moses said. God answers back, it's really about this God who's promising to be with you. You have borne witness to so many things in your life. I have seen so many things. Guys, you and I have had so many experiences, mistakes, failures, successes, um, jobs, losses, relationships, just struggles and joy in there. And all of those things you know, weave together to make the tapestry of what has led us to today. And yet we're not limited by any of the things that have happened to us up until today. Every single time God speaks to us, that holy ground moment means that limits are off the table. Possibilities are infinite that are born of faith. There's new things that God is doing all the time. Love it when the prophet Isaiah says, Behold, I am doing a new thing and it's springing up right in your past, right in, right in your path, and there's going to be streams in the desert. Things are going to open up and grow and bloom and heal in ways you never could have imagined. 
enduring Moses' continued argument with God. I hope that it wasn't that he was focusing on the story that his shoes told, because there was so much more that he had left to experience. It was almost as if he couldn't imagine things being different when he went back. And God was saying, it's not about what's already happened. It's about me being with you now. No more running. No more burying things in the sand. No more hiding. Once Sherlock discovered the places that the shoe had gone, he didn't need the shoe print anymore. Now he had what he needed in order to move forward and solve the case. In the same way that Moses' shoes led him to this place, but he didn't need them anymore. And the way I got these tonight is I had to take them off the feet of my 13-year-old. These shoes mean a lot to me, and they really have been all those places that I told you guys. However, it's okay that somebody else wears them now, right? Because what I have moving forward is way better than anything I have behind. That's kind of a weird C.S. Lewis quote. We'll talk about that later. New beginnings. God is in the business of constantly creating and recreating and breathing life and speaking order into chaos. And that's what happens anytime there's a holy ground experience. God says to Moses, stop trying to control. Stop trying to run away. Let yourself be led. I'm going to rescue my people and you're going to be the person that Israel looks to. That means that you have everything you need for this journey. I'm going to give you a staff. I'm going to give you the words and I'll be with you. So what about us? Are we willing not only to take off our shoes, but to turn aside, to create space for these encounters with God, to make room for the holy ground that God invites us to. It doesn't have to be a big burning bush experience, but am I open to the fact that the living God speaks now to me in ways I might not be able to predict and through people I might not expect. And yet the entire idea of God's continued involvement with humanity is that he is, God is with us, and God promises to continue that. I love that. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. And I promise you can take off your shoes because wherever you go, I'll be with you. Grace and peace to you guys.